It's Behind the Headlines, and I'm Joe Shaw. I am executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panelists today, we have Chrissy Sampson, who is a staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Hello. Good to have you. Thank uh, you. Beth Young, who is editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Hi, Joe. And Steve Wick, who is the executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Good morning, Steve. Welcome Good morning, back. everyone. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. Chrissy, let's start with a conversation uh, about schools and with the fall very quickly approaching. It's amazing how fast this summer has gotten past us, as they all seem to. Um, Schools are starting to prepare now for the return of kids, and they're making decisions about whether or not they're going to be requiring masks. And I know I've heard some stories about some states, uh, like Arizona, where the state has actually said that school districts can't mandate mask wearing and some of the school districts in those states are still doing it. Um, we don't have that problem here in New York. Uh, the districts can make that decision on their own. What are what are the local dis- the local districts are starting to make that decision now, right? Yeah, they are. And one of the concerns recently was that they relied so heavily on the New York State Department of Health for that um, that information along with the CDC, executive orders from the governor and what what the void, um, there was a void uh, on that guidance and Suffolk County Department of Health Services stepped up this week to fill in that gap. And, you know, the county is saying, you know, um, wear masks, everybody, even if you're vaccinated, um, to wear masks indoors, um, not outdoors necessarily, and physical distancing, which seems to be what social distancing is called right now in school in the education realm, but like three feet of physical distance in classrooms, that sort of thing. Um, I know that East Hampton is going to require masks. Um, Springs is going to require masks. Um, And so far that's on my radar. I don't know, you know, Beth, Steve, what's happening on the North Fork and, uh, you know, Riverhead area? Well, the, we have board meetings coming up just next week that are going to directly address this. Uh, Kathy Hockle, the soon-to-be governor, seemed to tip her hand yesterday that um, the state's going to require masks in schools. So it may come down to a state order that all school districts have to follow. Um, well, at the same time, though, she said she's not sure she can mandate that, though, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the previous mandates were were part of the governor's Governor Cuomo's executive or executive orders during the state of emergency, which is which is expired, and I think that makes things. A little tricky too. I, I, you know, and you know, Chrissy, you mentioned the, you know, the county health department, but that was guidance rather than a mandate, and and it pretty much said that districts, you know, are going to be able to do. Districts will make their own rules, although the county is recommending that they follow the CDC guidelines. It's like it's like nobody wants to give any clear direction here. It's kind of odd. Yeah, I think that the districts on the North Fork will go for masks, but we'll see this. I think this, the first big meetings are next Tuesday. Um, I, and, I think we're going to editorialize next week on just that kids have to get back into school. They really yeah. got to get back into these buildings. Um, that's an interesting point, Steve. The, the conversation now 
is not at all about remote learning. I don't think any of the districts have that as part of the strategy this year. It's going to be back in school, the questions whether masks are going to be required. I know Beth in Sag Harbor, uh, Sag Harbor has suggested pretty strongly that they're going to go with a mask requirement. But there were a couple of uh, folks, parents who turned up at a school board meeting this week to object to that. And I think you're going to see that in okay. each of the individual districts. There's some parents who, who feel like they should be the ones to make that decision rather than the district. Well, I mean, if kids could be vaccinated, maybe there'd be more of a case for it. But at this point, they can't. So that's a big yeah, problem. There's, there's, and that's we uh, had a conversation. We actually... Um, did a special express sessions event this week uh, talking about getting out facts about the vaccine. And uh, at that event, that event, by the way, is available online, uh, the video of it at 27east.com. Um, but one of the experts there, uh, Dr. Sharon Nachman from Stony Brook, said that she thinks by December there may be a vaccine available uh, for younger kids. Um, it wouldn't be the very youngest kids, but I think it was five to 12 uh, really? would be able to get the it. vaccine. Um, she's kind of optimistic that that'll be in place by then. And that could be a game changer. Although Absolutely. then the question becomes, do you still require masks in schools even if the kids are vaccinated? Um, because the county requirement right now is that even vaccinated folks like us should be wearing masks when we're, we're in grocery stores and places like that again uh, because of the, the risk of breakthrough cases with the Delta variant. Yes, and we haven't heard whether there'll be a booster available for, for people who have already been vaccinated. I'm sure that'll be on the horizon in the fall too. So this is all a moving target, um, but we need teachers? to get younger kids vaccinated. Yeah. Do they have to, teachers have to be vaccinated? Yeah, Christy, are teachers? Can, um, a lot of them are. Um, I don't think it can be that uh, it can be mandated just yet. I know that that's happening in the private sectors, business, private sector businesses, a lot stores requiring their employees to be vaccinated or admission or for vaccinated people only to some facilities like LTV example here in Wainscott. You can only like you have to have a vaccine already in order to even enter the building. But I don't think that's the case in schools yet. I know that. Um, the, the districts are tracking the percentage of, you know, adults, faculty members and staff members who have the vaccine. Um, and, you know, it's it's per particularly interesting question when it comes to buildings that have like a K to 12 format or or like a six to 12 format, like Bridgehampton is K to 12. Um, Pearson High School is six to 12. And, you know, as of, as of July, late July, Jeff Nichols, the superintendent in Sag Harbor, was saying that there is uh, there might be about 50 to 60 or 70 kids at Pearson who aren't eligible yet for the vaccine. So how do you handle that situation when, you know, 80%, 90% of your population in the building can be vaccinated, um, but there's that small group that would still be at risk? I think as far as the, the Steve's question about the, the teachers and staff at the schools, I think you get the unions involved there. Mm -hmm. I was reading I was reading an article and I don't think it was for districts locally, but but a lot of districts, um, you know, in the country are working with the unions to implement a you must be vaccinated or agree to be tested, um, you know, weekly or, or, you know, twice a week or, or whatever. And I think maybe that's the solution. 
Um, I, I understand the unions have to look out for for their membership, but I don't know why you want to stand in the way of um, you know public safety. That's my opinion. You know, that um, you know that brings up another interesting question about testing because locally tests have been in short supply. Um, you know, at the East Hampton Town Hall site, they've been running out of piece of, of the rapid antigen tests. Um, and it, they're harder to find now that some of the, mm. you know, the sites have been consolidating and closing. Gail, Dr. Gail Schoenfeld of East End Pediatrics um, came to the spring school board meeting uh, via video conference this week to say that that testing, um, like, the system is imploding. Her, her direct quote was the system is imploding because, you know, tests aren't as readily available right now as they have been in the past. You notice on the Suffolk County stats, there are far fewer people who are being tested lately, like just this week, you know. So how viable is that testing option if we don't have the tests available? And I think, too, the, the virulence of, of the Delta variant has just been a game changer this summer. If you remember last summer, we saw numbers start to fall off. And this summer, uh, it's been the opposite. And I think that has a lot to do with, with just how contagious uh, the Delta variant is. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact on school districts this fall more so than in the past, because I think they, they have to be concerned about the possible spread uh, it's it's just a more likely occurrence. And even the older kids who are vaccinated may be at risk for breakthrough cases. And, and if you have an outbreak in a school, um, that's going to have, you know, because of the because of how contagious this this is, this variant is, um, it could be really troubled fast. And, and they take that home then. Uh, and in some cases, to houses where there are adults who aren't vaccinated. So um, interesting thing there, too, though, is with the uh, with the school guidance that, that was released. Obviously, anybody who tests um, positive has to go quarantine for 10 days. But they're saying that people who come in contact with them, if they're vaccinated and have maintained that three foot of distance, then they won't have to quarantine. So you're not going to see this like we saw last year where one student in a classroom tests positive and the entire classroom has to quarantine for two weeks. You're going to see a little bit less of that um, this year, which um, I, I guess I don't know how I feel about that, but it, you know, it keeps more kids in the school, I guess, if, if they feel like the risk isn't, isn't there of, of the spreading. There's sort of like if you if you look at the camp, the summer camp scene locally, like that is sort of like an indicator to me, you know, Hayground schools camp closed for a whole week when they had one student and one counselor test positive. Um, and then Project Most here in East Hampton and Springs, they they had to quarantine 40 kids this past week because there was one case at the camp. So there's a, a real high alert level. And it's important to point out, too, that Suffolk County in general is actually ahead of the national pace for vaccinations uh, among the entire population. And I, I, you know, anecdotally, at least the South Fork, it's and that's you know, the, the region of the South Fork seems to be even ahead of the Suffolk County pace. Um, although we um, at, at our uh, express sessions event, we had a conversation about whether those numbers might be a little skewed uh, by the influx of folks from the city over the last year. And it may be difficult to get a, a, a real uh, accurate read on just how high vaccination levels are. Beth, I'm curious, you're you're a parent yeah. and um, 
I feel like parents who are, are looking at this. So you have some parents who, and I think, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of reject, you know, out of, out of hand their arguments, but a lot of parents feel like they should have the final say about what's right for their kids um, when it comes to things like masking and vaccinations and things like that. But then you have parents who are sending their kids into schools um, where if you allow that kind of flexibility with parents, they may be putting their own kids at risk. And that's going to just be for, for the, you know, we talk a lot about what the schools are doing, but parents are really in a tough spot right now. Um, it's got to be very stressful for parents of kids uh, looking ahead to the fall start of school. Yeah, well, um, my son is 25, and right. I really, I really I'm, wish I could I'm drag him down. Past experience here, right? <laughs> um, I really wish I could drag him down and get him vaccinated because he's one of these <laughs> kids who's just like, I, you know, this. I'm not going to die of this. What are you worrying about? Uh, uh, I want to wait till it's more safe. And it's just like, you know, if he was under 18, I, you know, I, I could have dragged him down to the uh, pharmacy <laughs> by now and taken care of this. Now I have to engage in diplomacy, which is never. Uh, <laughs> but so that's, God, I, I feel like parents should just be be cognizant of their fellow, their children's fellow students and the and the public health. I mean, you, you can't be selfish right now. Well, that's yeah. it. I mean, we got to remember we're yeah. not wearing masks to protect us. We're wearing masks to protect everybody else in, in the community. And if your kid's not wearing a mask, then what about all the other kids that that they're coming into contact with? Right. But I think that one of the big fear for parents over here that I've been talking to, I think they're resolved on districts were probably going to be recommending masks for everyone. But what they're really worried about is in an outbreak. And then all of a sudden, this, the district goes, oh, God, we have to close the school for two weeks or sure. we have to go back to hybrid learning. No one wants that. Yeah. No one no one wants to go back to that again. So it's they're really, really desperate. Yeah, the, the mass debate is one thing, but what they're really, really determined not determined to avoid is not having the building open and kids getting on school buses and going to school again. You see, the, the schools are a big part of what you cover. Um, is is that fair to say that I think people look back on last year and the remote learning as it was a necessary evil and we got through it, but there's a lot of concern, I think, among educators and parents both that kids really suffered from not being in classrooms. And that is a big part of the conversation going forward, right? Absolutely. That is the feeling universally among the districts that I cover. I cover Bridgehampton to Montauk and up to Sag Harbor. They are all set on fully in-person programs this year. You know, um, Adam Fine at the East Hampton School District, he's the new superintendent. You know, his quote was, we want to be as, you know, as normal as possible. We want to a return to normal, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, in-person learning is part of that. Um, the question becomes, what do you do with medically frail children who, you know, would have been fine because of herd immunity pre-COVID -pan pre pandemic when it comes to things like MMR and that sort of thing. But like, you know, they're, they're debating on, because you only have to provide two hours of instruction a day for children who are not in school. Hmm. Like that's a state thing. And so, you know, a lot of that synchronous learning, those Zooms and Google Meets for the kids were a stopgap measure because otherwise you can't have like your whole school learning only for two hours a day. That's crazy. 
Yeah, that is crazy. Well, but I, I think, you know, I mean, the, from what we've reported, the districts are adamant that they're not going they don't want to offer that. So so last year, everybody had an option. You could go back to school in person or you could do remote learning. And, you know, and, and it was all, both were offered. And from what we're you know, from what we're seeing now, they don't even want to offer that option. Obviously, mm-hmm. as Chrissy said, if there's kids that. Um, you know, that, that, that are, you know, super at risk that can't go back, then they'll get some instruction, but it's not going to be that parent's decision about whether their kids go back to school or not. If, um, if there were outbreaks, God forbid, we have um, another big sweep of, of positive tests and, and they end up having to close schools. The infrastructure is still in place to allow for remote learning, correct? I mean, the districts clearly don't want to do that, but that infrastructure remains there as an option in the worst case scenario, right? I, I think, think they, so on the I South Fork. I think what they wouldn't have the to scram- scramble like they did last year to, or mm-hmm. even, even, you know, in the spring before to, to set that all up. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just a matter of if that was a matter of learning how to do all that stuff online. And, and it's like anything else. We've we've learned how to live with COVID for a large part. And, and I think, you know, the same as, as for schools, if they needed to do that, they all know how to do that. Um, it's just a matter of, um, you know, flicking that switch and going back to it, I would think. On behalf of all the 10 year olds who listen to behind the headlines, <laughs> I'd like I'd like to ask, is this the end of snow days? Um, oh. Are there not going to be snow days? Are they going to throw that infrastructure in into gear and and do remote learning on snow days? Because I I have to tell you, I think it would be a tragedy if we took snow days away from kids. Weren't there is, a couple? Is districts? there going to be snow again? Right. <laughs> 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 Question. <laughs> leads us to our global warming topic. Weren't there Absolutely. a couple of districts last year that actually? decided to, I think Sag Harbor was one where there was a couple of days where they, they said, all right, this is going to be a snow day. There's going to be no work. I think it's important. You know, East Hampton took those traditional snow days without, you know, remote instruction, but Springs stayed with remote instruction (laughs) when they had to close. So even two districts in Springs feeds into East Hampton at the high school level. So it was just such a weird scenario where they they normally unite and work together with the same policies. It was unusual to see one district out here differing from the other others in near proximity. Snow days are such a joy of childhood. I would hate to have that taken away from kids. So I hope I hope the districts keep this. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton from the Express News Group. And with us today, Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, Beth Young from the East End Beacon, and Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group. Uh, let's slide, you, you know, you talked to Beth, you mentioned, uh, geez, are we even gonna have snow anymore? Uh, so let's talk about climate change, Steve. Um, there, a big report came out from the United Nations this week that sort of gave us a, a stark reminder of just how bad the situation is. And this is an, this is an international story that reflects very significantly on the East End, and, and we're going to feel its impacts very, very soon, right? Or already are. We have, a, we have an editorial on it this week that, that basically sums up what the UN report says. There was a scientific study just before that show that talked about ocean currents changing to the point where um, they're kind of in collapse, meaning that the, the ice melt in the North is so severe that it's changed the currents that kind of keep 
weather uh, on both sides of the Atlantic in a very certain pattern. And you look at, again, just look at a map of the East End, look at the, the South Fork sticking out, look at the North Fork as kind of this little bony arthritic finger kind of sticking out into the into the Atlantic Ocean with places like Hashamamic, where you have the sound on one side of, one, of the road and the pond on the other side, and then the causeway to Orient. Um, th this is a region of Long Island that is really going to feel this, and it's it's already feeling it. I mean, we have trustees who said there are streets that flood routinely now, even during during not full moon or nor'easter events. Um, there's really big decisions coming ahead. Maybe they're ten years away, uh, and government's not good at planning. It, it tends to deal with what's in front of them at that moment, but. The editorials basically suggest that the trustees of the five East End towns need to start thinking about this. There probably should be some kind of climate study institute, perhaps set up at Stony Brook, funded by the state. Uh, this is coming, it's here now, but it, it's only going to grow. And this is happening at a time, Joe, where property values have gone completely crazy. And you have just the other night driving out to, to Orient to cover something, I noticed houses that had washed away in recent storms are now being rebuilt on the very same beachfronts on the sound. Uh, and they're gonna wash away again, and then wow. again, and then again. And that's the moment, right? Yeah. Towns spend thousands of dollars moving sand around. Uh, at some point, the towns are gonna have to say, I'm sorry, you can't rebuild that house. Then what happens? Then what happens to the tax revenue? There are huge issues coming up. Yeah, none of the towns have a retreat policy in place, um, and and I think there's a that's a tough thing to get into place because it gets complicated about what's what you can do and what you can't do. But um, Steve, what are what are some ways that we're starting to see the impact? Now you talked about the rising water levels, and I know that affected uh, one of the ferry companies in the last couple of years. They had to do a lot of infrastructure work just to adjust to the rising water levels. But what are some other ways that we're starting to see? the effects of climate change on the East End specifically? Well, I think you're seeing, let's just talk about the North Fork for a second. You're seeing areas that are now routinely washing over on storm events. Uh, the causeway out to Orient uh, is a very delicate road. Um, we mentioned in the editorial that the County Road 48 that goes by the Halyard and the Soundview Motel um, they've just worked, they spent, I don't know, $10 million to make it a little safer so people can walk back and forth through a parking lot, but they didn't raise the road nor move the road further south. So it's still completely vulnerable to the sound, which if you've been to the Halyard or the Soundview Motel, you know, it's right there, uh, right there in the rocks. Um, the trustees here, many of them are very worried about this. They think that there's huge decisions coming up, but what you see routinely now to get back to your point, Joe, is some some streets that never flooded before are flooding. Um, you talk to people all the time who say who live on creeks, saying their backyards are now at high tide events or wet, uh, even not even during a storm. Um, it, it's it's here and it's it's upon us. And we they know the ocean levels have risen. They know that just one day earlier in July, enough ice melted in Greenland to cover all of Florida with two inches of water. Mm. So. This is here, this is coming, and it, I guess I'm sort of surprised that no one in Suffolk County is, is saying we really need to at least get a group together, a study group together, to start really thinking about what to do. What I find intriguing too is, Beth, you've been around um, down here on the South Fork 
and reported for years. And you know that the that one of the impacts of this is going to be more and more homeowners are going to want to take steps to protect their properties. And that's going to likely mean hard structures on the beach, which um, aren't allowed, but seems like every once in a while, somebody figures out a way around the, the law and that exacerbates erosion even further. And it, it's just, there's a cascading effect of some of these um, climate changes uh, with the changes that come with climate change. Um, it's going to have other effects in a lot of different ways on, on our way of life down here, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's not just rising sea levels. I mean, th there is a plan for coastal retreat in Montauk, but it's highly controversial. And I haven't heard anyone in East Hampton really bring it up in the last couple of years because when mm -hmm. it was unveiled, it was so controversial. Um, but I mean, um, COVID is uh is is a is a warning bell for climate change too i mean we're we're li we're living in um in times where there's uh uh the the potential for disease is higher in hotter in hotter weather um the uh the potential for heat related injury i mean all the cooling centers are open right now we, we're having um uh problems with that as we speak um uh, tick what diseases, the scallop population, you know, uh, the Gulf Stream effect is huge, which Steve mentioned. Uh, the, 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 they're talking about the introduction of southern species, the cow nose ray, perhaps playing a role in the scallop um, failure the last two years. Um, I was up in, uh, in Maine this summer. They weren't catching any lobsters. And uh, my uncle went swimming in the ocean in Maine for 15 minutes. He said, I've, ne I've, I've lived up here 30 years. I've never thought to swim in the ocean here. If I could just interrupt for one second, last night in Orient, Alec Baldwin came over from his home in Amagansett to speak at the Congregational Church. And to get to piggyback on something Beth just said, Alec Baldwin made the point that COVID is a, is a dress rehearsal, uh, really, for the change that's coming. And he mentioned climate change in particular. Um, but other variants that are certainly certain to come. So he said, it, it talked about the stress of the last 18 months or 16 months on COVID, but he, he, he kept referring to it as just a dress rehearsal for what's really coming. That's interesting. And it was a really interesting night, him talking last night to a, a small group of people um, outside at the, behind the Orient Congregational Church, really a beautiful setting. But you, you, I came away driving back to my house in Kutchog just thinking, wow, this has been an incredibly stressful 16 months, but where are we going? And I think once million dollar homes begin to wash away and towns begin on both forks to decide, well, I'm sorry, you can't rebuild there. And then the homeowner says, well, you're gonna have to buy me out. Uh, it's, it's too late at that point. I mean, that's the problem is yeah. those are decisions that really, as, as you said, um, you know, Chrissy, that, that um, there was a proposal in Montauk and it, it hasn't even been brought up again since because it's such a controversial idea of requiring people to move back. But those are decisions that really have to be made now um, because it's coming. And, and if you try and make them in the midst of, of the, those things happening, it's a lot harder. It's tied into, you know, fossil fuels and renewable energy, of course, too, because as Beth mentioned a minute ago, you know, we have these cooling centers open on extremely hot days. And what is the demand on electricity and, you know, the use of fossil fuels, particularly in a climate where, you know, people on the South Fork are still concerned about the 
wind farm, <laughs> you know, they don't want the turbines. They you, they pointed to the Block Island turbines that the press reported on. You guys reported on this week the Block Island turbo, turbines being offline because of what was it cracks in the blades mm. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they had to do some. And you know, our the Stars editorial this week says climate, not cracked blades, is the real issue. And, you know, that sort of like speaks to the need for more renewable energy. It's a good point, too, that, the, you know, it's been fascinating to me that more heat in the summer, all roads lead to COVID. You know, th there's an impact on that as far as COVID, um, because just like in the winter, numbers tend to go up because people congregate indoors because it's too cold. When it gets too hot in the summer, People tend to congregate indoors with uh, air conditioning, and that's one of the reasons, in theory at least, why we've seen a little bit of an increase this year, uh, that along with how, how uh, contagious the Delta variant is. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, so, Steve, so do you think people oh, – go ahead, Bill. I was just going to say, so, so do we think there's a, a glimmer of hope in the – and the federal infrastructure bill that looks like it's it's you know going through and and all that and and we'll focus on um, you know some 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 ways to to combat climate change or are we going to see any of that money out here and um, I mean is that at least a you know a good start? I think that's a really interesting question, Bill. As to I mean, look, the county now balloons trying to figure out what to do with opioid settlement money. I think infrastructure money, what do you, how much of it comes our way to the, east, yeah. to the east end? How is it used on the east end? Do you start raising roads? It really surprises the heck out of me that the county spent millions of dollars to improve the safety of the road, County Road 48 in front of the, uh, of the Soundview Motel, um, but didn't raise the road or move it even slightly to the south away from the waterfront. So it's still going to overflow. It's still going to, it's still in danger of being washed over. And Hashemomic is right there to the south. So you have the sound joining the pond and then go down to Route 25, where it flows under the railroad bridge and the road into the bay. Um, it, it just strikes me that huge, huge decisions are coming. And I think we, had, we saw something, some, something similar in Hampton Bays where the, you know, the highway superintendent wanted to raise Dune Road in, in Hampton Bays where, where it's constantly flooding and there was a big uproar and nobody wanted to spend the money and that's not the solution. And, and so nothing gets done in the road floods. I remember years ago covering, remember the washover, maybe the mid 80s on Dune Road near where that new village was formed years later. Remember that? Yep. And <laughs> a new inlet got cut through it. And they just build in the inlet and let people build homes all over the place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> millions of dollars worth of homes in an area that had actually been a cut through, a gut. Mm -hmm. um, these are such short-term decisions. And there's so much pain coming, financial pain coming when someone says, I'm sorry, that's that's the last time you're going to rebuild there. And let me ask you, you let me ask you a different question, Steve. Do you think that this, that, that how close we are and how the, the effects we're starting to see and how bad it may get has penetrated the, the public's consciousness on the East End? Do you? I don't think so. I mean, we have this editorial today, which I would urge everyone to read. It seems like it would have drawn some attention. And all I've gotten is some I got one email this morning from a very, um, I won't call him right wing, but a person in Greenport who just say, basically says, what a bunch of crap your editorial is. <laughs> I mean, really just blasted it. Just 
what a what a crock wick you keep inventing passing along this nonsense about climate change and these things are coming they're here now and you know beth talks about people going swimming in maine no one ever swam in the ocean in, in northern maine no one ever thought you wouldn't have lobster seasons this is all happening we have southern species here that no one's ever seen before but to get a letter like that this morning off an editorial and no response from people saying, well, maybe the trustees ought to, perform, how to, perform, how to get together on the East End and form some kind of study group. And I think, um, Joe, you and I have talked a lot about East End news projects that we all team up on. We did it on opioids. This is definitely an issue where every newspaper and every website on the East End could come together and start doing these stories. If we need to sound the alarm if politicians are so completely unwilling to do it. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I think we need to tell people, we need to give people facts about um, that they may not be aware of. And I think Beth really touched on some of the impacts as far as the scallop population that is related to climate change directly. And, you know, those things, I think we have to connect the dots for people. And I think that's going to be a challenge for us in the coming year and years, uh, because I do think it is going to be one of the big stories. I mean, parts of the Peconic Bay, I think in July, were in the 90s. Mm. Yeah. And and that's just not sustainable. Closer to Riverhead. I mean, you're not going to have a scallop crop closer to Riverhead if it gets that warm in the summer. The economic impacts of it are going to be felt for years, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, with us today, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, Beth Young from the East End Beacon, and Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group. Um, so let's talk about Hannibal Lecter's favorite island, Plum, Plum Island. Um, and you guys all took a, took a trip to the waters. Uh, I think each of the newspapers um, uh, you guys all took the trip uh, for an underwater excursion off Plum Island. Um, Beth, talk about, you were actually on the trip, correct? Yeah, uh, last yeah, Friday. Tell me, tell me about what, what was this about? What what were you doing swimming around in the water? <laughs> were you nervous at all swimming around in the waters off Plum Island? Uh, well, I, I wasn't swimming. <laughs> 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 or I would have brought my Hannibal Lecter to turn. Um, the um, least turns. <laughs> yes. So uh, the most of the least turns. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, the, uh, the the water surrounding Plum Island, where, as you probably know, there's a, a federal animal disease research laboratory, have been pretty much off limits to the public for a very long time. Um, and the New York Natural Heritage Program got permission back in 2019 to do an underwater survey of the water surrounding the island. Um, So they did a very cursory survey in 2019, and I spent the last week uh, following up on that survey with a really in-depth, they brought scientific divers in to really just get a a full picture of what's in the water surrounding Plum Island. And one of the really surprising things they found was, you know, it's, it's a really great fishing area, but they didn't find on any of their dives, they didn't find any human impacts, no fishing line, no bottle caps, Mm. nothing. So they found just this very pristine area that's teeming with life and a lot of rocky areas. And the rocky areas are where a lot of um, invertebrates like to uh, take hold and grow. So, uh, So these rocky areas were just teeming, teeming, teeming with life. They found just Every square inch was just covered with with underwater marine life, and um, that's wonderful. 
Yeah, yeah they're just beginning to classify all the different species they found because they found so many. Which certainly backs up the point that keeping an island fairly undeveloped and no septic tanks and no stuff just really does help the environment. It's a, it's a snapshot of the alternate reality. Um, and, and it really does. I'm, I'm assuming, Beth, that part of the point of this is to show just how what it could look like or what it would look like without human intervention so that we can make a comparison to the other waters around us. And, and you start to get a, a base level that you can work from and say, this is what it's supposed to be like. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is what it is like. That's valuable. Yeah, the, this dive was funded by the Save the Sound uh, Preserve Plum Island effort, and their their big goal is to show why why this is an important thing to preserve to preserve the island uh, in its natural state, which is the goal of many environmental groups at this point. Um, it's a little bit closer to reality at this point, since the island will not have to be sold to the highest bidder. But the future is still very much up in the air for who is going to end up managing that island ultimately. Steve, you had somebody on that trip, too, as well, right? Yeah, Bob Lipa uh, went to turn into terrific stories the cover of our okay. Suffolk Times this week. Uh, we used a lot of the photographs uh, he took on the surface and they took under underwater. T to me, it just speaks to what we have here and what we can lose here. And it all ties into what we just talked about in terms of climate change. It all, talk it all goes into what we can save and not save on the East End. Uh, what's left can we save? What, what can we hold on to? Um, there, it, it, it just raises an enormous question of what does the future look like out here and how do we get there? Um, because that was, as Beth points out, it was really reassuring to see how much is pristine. No fishing lines, no dead, no dead species, no blank areas, no desert areas. An island that was basically just one end of it was worked. The rest of it was left alone, and this is what you get. And as we move forward in terms of land development, land prices, which have gone crazy, the money out here now is absolutely insane. It's what's going on out here. We had a story two weeks ago, we've already talked about it before in previous shows, that fire departments can't get people because no one can afford to live here. I mean, there's so many enormous issues that, to me, have a common theme, which is, which is what are we going to be as we go down the road? Chrissy, you had... You had someone on the boat as well. It's about perspective, right? I mean, it's this provides a valuable perspective to, to view everything else on the East End right now. Absolutely. And um, I've actually, we had a, a great writer who um, was on the boat, Bella Lewis, but, you know, I actually had the opportunity myself to actually visit Plum Island and go hiking and visit the Animal Disease Research Center um, in 2015. And it was breathtaking. And so I can attest to the pristine nature of the land. And, you know, this is now, as Beth mentioned, the under the underwater areas, you know, you, we have to do something to save this place. And, you know, it's it's imperative. It really is. There's a the reason of it is really uh, been heightened. And I do think that the Plum Island trip was really kind of a watershed moment in showing what's here and what we can do and can't do. But every town has got to start dealing with what's left and how do we save it? And how do we deal, particularly on the North Fork, uh, Joe and Bill, with this enormous amount of money coming out. Uh, houses going from 400 to, to a million, all of them in a couple of months, and people lining up to buy them. Um, we're really under, we're really changing here. 
And it's to some people looking ahead as to how do we keep the North Fork looking like what we want. Um, it, it's a little scary. Yeah. Go ahead, Beth. You were going to say. Um, well, I, you know, I, I just wanted to to mention that um, everybody wants to. Every, all the fishermen want to fish in Plum Gut. And this is the reason every, all the fishermen want to fish in Plum Gut. That's where the fish are, and the fish are there because that's where the species that they depend on are. So this does have an impact on our lives. It, Absolutely. And our economy. And our economy. Yeah. I think that's that's a big part of it. And and I think that gets missed a lot that that this is val- I mean, I think we're we're killing the golden goose to some degree. I think that's um, a really important point, Joe. We're yeah. killing the golden goose. Yeah, because I think when the waters go, so goes the economy. And I, I think that's a real issue. Um, so when we talk about economy, let's talk about a different issue, which is uh, marijuana and the, the <laughs> fact that a lot of the local um, municipalities are now um, beginning to take up the cause of whether or not they want to allow uh, the sale of marijuana locally. Now, again, I've had to explain this. I had visitors uh, come in from out of state and I had to explain to them that the way it works in New York right now is it's legal to possess marijuana. It's legal to smoke marijuana. You can really smoke marijuana in public. Any place that you can smoke cigarettes, you're allowed to smoke marijuana. Now, that's all legal. You just can't buy it and you just can't sell it, um, at least for now. That's going to change soon uh, because the state has to set up some rules and regulations to allow for that. But it's also, Bill, it's a, it's a, it's a question about what local the state is going to leave it up to local municipalities to decide whether or not they want to opt out of allowing uh, at least maintaining the option of not allowing the sale of marijuana within their borders right and a lot of the local municipalities are starting to take up that question now correct all the towns and the the two towns on the east end and, and the villages will be able to to make that determination uh, West Hampton Beach Village Board had a meeting the other night and uh, they are they said they're pretty much poised to to opt out. They would be one of the only villages The Quag, I think, has also talked about maybe maybe opting out. Um, it's too early to say where the towns are going to land, but I, I don't I don't haven't heard a lot of strong opposition to opting out. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, and, and uh, Steve can talk better about it, but Riverhead also. Riverhead failed to opt out. They they were considering an opt out measure. Um, they they put it to a vote and it and it failed last month. But now they formed a committee to um, to kind of direct and dictate where those sales are going to be. And I think that where you see the towns and villages that don't opt out, that's going to be become the looming question: is where do we want these pot shops and um, and lounges to be if if they are allowed? Um, I was a little surprised by the West Hampton Beach decision. I mean, I, I lived in West Hampton Beach for for a number of years, and 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 it's it's a very you know, uh, it's a destination for for a lot of people, but it's a very insular community, so maybe it's not too surprising that that you know that they want to uh, you know to to better control that. But I, I think we've had this discussion before. If 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 it's if it's allowed in Southampton Town and right across the street and and not in West Hampton Beach Village, I'm not sure what the village gets out of that. If people are buying it in one place and not the other, and then the village is losing out on um, you know some some revenue that would come to the municipalities from the sales, although how much that's going to actually be is 
is is kind of uh, still a question and and what it can can be spent on and then um you know and then we've talked about it too you've got the shinnecock who are who are poised also to um to begin uh, you know selling selling marijuana so I, I think that you know my my personal view is is it's you know I don't I don't smoke marijuana or use use THC cannabis, but um, I, I see it as very similar to you know to to bars and liquor stores and and all that and a little bit you know I mean after after prohibition I'm sure there were some of these same discussions and where do we put this stuff and now you know there's a liquor store on every corner seemingly in some communities and, and all that. So I think it's just going to be a matter of time before it, it just becomes part of the mainstream. Steve, these conversations are happening in Riverhead and on the North Fork as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Riverhead, as Bill pointed out, um, did not opt out, but then they're now asking, you know, doing a study group on where to put them. Uh, Southfold really is kind of punted. They haven't really come to a decision, nor has Greenport. Um, kind of odd. I guess they're just waiting for the clock to run out. Um, I, I think, I think I, my, that's my prediction is a lot of these municipalities are, they're just going to at some point say, Oh, it's too late. We missed, uh, we missed yeah. the boat. So, oh, sorry, so we're guys. forced we into we it. We didn't know the clock was running. Right. They have till the end of the year, I believe. Right. Yeah. They have yeah. till the end of the year. They, they do, but there's a weird timeline because of the permissive referendum element right. of opting out. If they pass, it gets, it gets bogged down. It gets complicated. But if, if they pass a resolution to opt out, then they have to allow um, the, you know, the member, the community members have an, have an option to force a permissive referendum to overturn that decision. So you have to allow, I think it's 30 days for them to do that after you pass the opt out law. Um, there has to be public hearings and, and, and all that. So ultimately, yes, they have to make a decision by December 31st. But if they miss that op, miss that timeline for the opt out stuff, I'm not sure what happens. Yeah. It, it, what you hear in places like Greenport is a, a kind of a concern that you have, a, let's say, on weekends where the place is absolutely packed in a small downtown area, small hamlet area. And there's a store where you can go in and, and, and a lounge where people can smoke. And you have all these tourists and all their kids walking up and down, you know, the main street there and the front street. There's just a lot of concern about what it will, what it would be like. What, you know, what is it off-putting to people to smell that? Um, but I gotta say, I there was a, there was a conversation publicly about the legalization of marijuana, and suddenly we would see clouds of marijuana smoke on all of the the, the village which streets. Hasn't happened and, at all. Which has yeah. not happened at all. Well, I mean, in, I, in, yeah. in the article we wrote on West Hampton Beach, some of the board members had mentioned that there was an issue with with the village beaches, that families are going to the beaches and to have their beach day, and they're smelling, you know, the the odor of, of marijuana, and, and it was disturbing them. And I think so. So the village is also looking at exploring legislation about where where you can smoke as you mentioned. I thought you Joe, couldn't smoke. I thought you weren't allowed to smoke on the beach in beaches. I, in, well, I, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's, hap the, it, it's happening. But I know that the village is looking at also legislation, looking at where where people are allowed to smoke tobacco and, and you know, and changing those laws to impact where people are going to smoke marijuana. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's ways to to address that by just banning smoking altogether. Yeah. Chrissy, East Hampton's having this conversation too, right? And and it sounds to me like um, Peter Van Skoyek is is not that interested. He, he does sort of want to opt want to opt out, right? 
Um, you know, I think he was just raising a lot of questions. He likened it, like Bill was saying, to prohibition um, and acknowledged that there was, you know, that underground sort of like, you know, I forget, um, the word is not coming to me, like, I don't know, the, 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 the underground. If, yeah, if you allow, if, if one t- a town allows the sale legally, the next town over doesn't, you're going to push a lot of the market underground and you're going to have people still selling it, just doing it illegally again. You know, yeah. you have like the, to continue the example of alcohol, you have dry counties in places in like Pennsylvania and Texas and like the next county over will have, you know, will, will not be a dry county and like your people just go elsewhere to get it. Got two for one night over the next county over. <laughs> Happy hours, Steve. The loss of revenue is is a legitimate issue, but right. I mean, if if uh, a town or village opts out, uh, the revenue. I mean, first of all, it's it's another business that can go into a downtown area, right. uh, li- like it or not. But but there's also going to be the potential for some tax revenue uh, that that they would be passing on. Yeah, it's all true. But when you talk to some people, they they say things show like, well. We need the money, but what if it's not the amount that we think it's going to be? Then what do you do next? You know, what comes after this if this isn't the money that towns and hamlets need? Or the state? And am I wrong or, or are there specifics as to how that money can be spent? I mean, it doesn't just go into a general fund, right? It's got to be used for 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 certain services, health, health initiatives and, and that type of thing. A portion of it. Anyway. That might be the ideal. I'm not sure, Bill, to answer your question. Yeah. I think yeah, well, that certainly might be the ideal. One of the things I think that's going to continue to be an issue on the North Fork is a lot of growers are planning or have purchased property there specifically to grow pot. And the, one of the interesting things that's very different from the wine industry is that the way New York has set this up, you're, it's not like you're going to be able to go to a tasting room on the property of somebody who's growing pot on the North Fork, they, they will have to sell it to a, a state-sanctioned dispensary. So it, it has it has a lot to do with potentially changing the agricultural makeup of the North Fork as well. Mm-hmm. There's, there's two aspects of this that I find fascinating. One is, this is not, this is an agricultural mm-hmm. uh, question, but it isn't because pot growing facilities are generally warehouse type growing facilities. They're not gonna be growing pot in a field it's it's a much more of an industrial type of a of a growing operation. So okay. that so you know it, it, this is not the waving fields of pot are not coming <laughs> to the east end. I it, think you better call the Pine Barrens Commission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the These are going to be most of the pot is going to be grown in hydroponic conditions, and yeah. uh, it's really an industrial operation. So Fine barbed wire. Yeah, and so and, is and, a lot of the greenhouse that. operations on the North Fork already. Yeah. yeah, there's some major greenhouse operations on the North Fork. Yeah, so that was yeah. it. And the second thing is, and Bill touched on this, uh, the the Shinnecock Nation, uh, I think, is just a game changer um, because they are a completely, you know, they they are sovereign land, and while they have said they're going to follow the New York State guidelines as as guidelines, they do not have the same kinds of pressures that local governments have, and they've basically made it clear that they plan to begin retail sales uh, as early as by the end of the year. And, and I, the, the legalities of that are really fascinating to me um, because uh, argument there is an argument that, that the nation doesn't have to follow any of the state rules. Right. 
Yeah, so. they're, and they're they're flexing their political power. Look at the land back sure. issue that, that we talked about the last couple of weeks ago in, in the Shinnecock Hills. They're going to do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And that is a game changer for the East End. No question. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you are Southampton Village or Sag Harbor Village and you opt out, uh, it's not so like what? you're going to eliminate the scourge of marijuana yeah. on the South Florida. I would think right the away. traffic along Montauk Highway would get pretty busy once uh, once a large scale operation opens up. Well, and then when you put the casino there, too, it's just going to be it's going to be a night. One step shopping <laughs> for towns like Southampton and, and Sag Harbor. Um, the idea of a marijuana shop or a marijuana lounge, especially if they're high end doesn't seem that out of character, especially for a place like, you know, Sag Harbor is a fairly hip village. And I it'll make it the way it used to be <laughs> just legal now. So I, I think Sag I got, Harbor is, go I was gonna say Sag Harbor has the unique position of having the Omo apothecary. And of course that's owned by Dave Falkowski of open-minded organics, who has been at the forefront of this in New York state lobbying for that law to be passed and now for responsible consumption and speaking and doing presentations for the municipalities. So he's got that shop in Sag Harbor and, you know, he, That'll that's grow. like, his yeah. business is going to grow. So yeah. no, no pun intended. Yeah. You know, again, I think it's just going to all turn into control with the, you know, whether they opt out or not. It's where where do you want these stores to be? Where do you want these lounges to be and kind of kind of control it that way on a municipal level? So you have a certain area where if parents walking their kids want to avoid the smell, um, you know, they they stay off that uh, off that corner or whatever. But going to be a very interesting thing to watch in the next few years. We are out of time. Uh, wow. But what a what a great conversation! Um, thank you very much, uh, Cole. Thank you, Cole, making guest appearance at the end there. Uh, Christy Sampson, thank you for being with us. Thank uh, you for having me, Beth Young. Thanks as always. Thank you, um, Steve Wick. Good to have you back. See you thank soon. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate uh, it. Bill Sutton, thank you to uh, thank you to you for co-hosting. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw, and we'll see you here again next week. Thanks, guys. Good great conversation. show, guys. Thanks a lot, Bye, everybody.